Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Kim by Roger Kipling. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Kim by Roger Kipling. Read by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter 9, Part 1 Sadokes was the son of Yeleth the Wise, chief of the Raven clan. Itswoot the Bear had him in care to make him a medicine man. He was quick and quicker to learn, bold and bolder to dare. He danced the dread Kalukwali dance to tickle Itswoot the Bear. Oregon Legend Kim flung himself whole-heartedly upon the next turn of the wheel. He would be a sahib again for a while. In that idea, so soon as he had reached the broad road under Simla Town Hall, he cast about for one to impress. A Hindu child, some ten years old, squatted under a lamp-post. "'Where is Mr. Lurgan's house?' demanded Kim. "'I do not understand English.' was the answer, and Kim shifted his speech accordingly. "'I will show.' Together they set off through the mysterious dusk, full of the noises of a city below the hillside, and the breath of a cool wind in Diodar crowned Jacko, shouldering the stars. The house-lights, scattered on every level, made, as it were, a double firmament. Some were fixed, others belonged to the rickshaws of the careless, open-spoken English folk, going out to dinner. "'It is here,' said Kim's guide, and halted in a veranda, flush with the main road. No door stayed them, but a curtain of beaded reeds that split up the lamplight beyond. "'He is come,' said the boy, in a voice little louder than a sigh, and vanished. Kim felt sure that the boy had been posted to guide him from the first, but, putting a bold face on it, parted the curtain. A black-bearded man, with a green shade over his eyes, sat at a table, and, one by one, with short white hands, picked up globules of light from a tray before him, threaded them on a glancing silken string, and hummed to himself the while. Kim was conscious that beyond the circle of light the room was full of things that smelt like all the temples of all the East. A whiff of musk, a puff of sandalwood, and a breath of sickly jessamine oil caught his open nostrils. "'I am here,' said Kim at last, speaking in the vernacular. The smells made him forget that he was to be a sahib. Seventy-nine, eighty, eighty-one. The man counted to himself, stringing pearl after pearl so quickly that Kim could scarcely follow his fingers. He slid off the green shade, and looked fixedly at Kim for a full half-minute. The pupils of the eye dilated and closed at pinpricks, as if at will. 
There was a fakir in the Taksali gate who had just this gift, and made money by it, especially when cursing silly women. Kim stared with interest. His disreputable friends could further twitch his ear, almost like a goat, and Kim was disappointed that this new man could not imitate him. "'Do not be afraid,' said Lurgan Sahib suddenly. "'Why should I fear?' "'Thou wilt sleep here to-night, and stay with me till it is time to go again to Nucklau. It is an order.' "'It is an order,' Kim repeated. "'But where shall I sleep?' "'Here, in this room.' Lurgan Sahib waved his hand toward the darkness behind him. "'So be it,' said Kim composedly. "'Now?' He nodded and held the lamp above his head. As the light swept them there leapt out from the walls a collection of Tibetan devil-dance masks, hanging above the fiend-embroidered draperies of those ghastly functions. Horned masks, scowling masks, and masks of idiotic terror. In a corner a Japanese warrior, mailed and plumed, menaced him with a halberd, and a score of lances and kandas and katars gave back the unsteady gleam. But what interested Kim more than all these things—he had seen devil-danced masks at the Lahore Museum—was a glimpse of the soft-eyed Hindu child who had left him in the doorway, sitting cross-legged under the table of pearls, with a little smile on his scarlet lips. "'I think that Lurgan Sahib wishes to make me afraid, and I am sure that that devil's brat below the table wishes to see me afraid. "'This place,' he said aloud, "'is like a wonder-house. Where is my bed?' Lurgan Sahib pointed to a native quilt in a corner by the loathsome masks, picked up the lamp, and left the room black. "'Was that Lurgan Sahib?' Kim asked as he cuddled down. No answer. He could hear the Hindu boy breathing, however, and, guided by the sound, crawled across the floor and cuffed into the darkness, crying, "'Give answer, devil! Is this the way to lie to a Sahib?' From the darkness he fancied he could hear the echo of a chuckle. It could not be his soft-fleshed companion, because he was weeping. So Kim lifted up his voice and called aloud, "'Lurgam Sahib! O oh, Lurgam Sahib! Is it an order that thy servant does not speak to me?' "'It is an order.' The voice came from behind him, and he started. "'Very good. But remember,' he muttered as he resought the quilt, "'I will beat thee in the morning. I do not love Hindus.' That was no cheerful night, the room being overfull of voices and music. Kim was waked twice by someone calling his name. The second time he set out in search, and ended by bruising his nose against a box that certainly spoke with a human tongue, but in no sort of human accent. It seemed to end in a tin trumpet, and to be joined by wires to a smaller box on the floor, so far at least as he could judge by touch, and the voice, very hard and whirring, came out of the trumpet. Kim rubbed his nose and grew furious, thinking, as usual, in Hindi, "'This with a beggar from the bazaar might be good. But I am a Sahib, and the son of a Sahib, and, which is twice as much as more beside, a student of Nucklau. Yes!' 
Here he turned to English. A boy of St. Xavier's. Damn Mr. Lurgan's eyes. It is some sort of machinery, like a sewing machine. Oh, it is a great cheek of him. We are not frightened that way down at Lucknow, no. Then, in Hindi, But what does he gain? He is only a trader. I am in his shop. But Crichton Sahib is a colonel, and I think Crichton Sahib gave orders that it should be done. How I will beat that Hindu in the morning! What is this? The trumpet-box was pouring out a string of the most elaborate abuse that even Kim had ever heard, in a high, uninterested voice that for a moment lifted the short hairs of his neck. When the vile thing drew breath, Kim was reassured by the soft sewing-machine-like whirr. "'Choop! Be still!' he cried. And again he heard a chuckle that decided him. "'Choop! Or I break your head!' The box took no heed. Kim wrenched at the tin trumpet, and something lifted with a click. He had evidently raised a lid. If there were a devil inside, now was its time. For—he sniffed. Thus did the sewing-machines of the bazaar smell. He would clean that shaitan. He slipped off his jacket and plunged it into the box's mouth. Something long and round bent under the pressure. There was a whirr, and the voice stopped, as voices must, if you ram a thrice-doubled coat onto the wax cylinder and into the works of an expensive phonograph. Kim finished his slumbers with a serene mind. In the morning he was aware of Lurgan Sahib looking down on him. "'Ah!' said Kim, firmly resolved to cling to his Sahibdom. "'There was a box in the night that gave me bad talk, so I stopped it. Was it your box?' The man held out his hand. "'Shake hands, O'Hara,' he said. "'Yes, it was my box. I keep such things because my friends the Rajas like them. That one is broken, but it was cheap at the price.' Yes, my friends, the kings are very fond of toys, and so am I sometimes." Kim looked him over out of the corners of his eyes. He was a Sahib in that he wore Sahib's clothes. The accent of his Urdu, the intonation of his English, showed that he was anything but a Sahib. He seemed to understand what moved in Kim's mind ere the boy opened his mouth, and he took no pains to explain himself as did Father Victor or the Lucknow masters. Sweetest of all, he treated Kim as an equal on the Asiatic side. "'I'm sorry you cannot beat my boy this morning. He says he will kill you with a knife or poison. He is jealous, so I have put him in the corner, and I shall not speak to him to-day. He has just tried to kill me. You must help me with the breakfast. He is almost too jealous to trust just now.' Now a genuine imported Sahib from England would have made a great to-do over this tale. Lugran Sahib stated it as simple as Mahbub Ali was used to record his little affairs in the north. The back veranda of the shop was built out over the sheer hillside, and they looked down into their neighbours' chimney-pots, as is the custom of Simla. And even more than the purely Persian meal cooked by Lurgan Sahib with his own hands, the shop fascinated Kim. The Lahore Museum was larger, but here were more wonders. 
ghost daggers and prayer wheels from Tibet, turquoise and raw amber necklaces, green jade bangles, curiously packed incense sticks in jars crusted over with raw garnets, the devil masks of overnight, and a wall full of peacock blue draperies, gilt figures of Buddha, and little portable lacquer altars, Russian samovars with turquoises on the lid, eggshell china sets in quaint octagonal cane boxes, yellow ivory crucifixes from Japan of all places in the world, so Lurgan Sahib said, carpets in dusty bales smelling atrociously pushed back behind torn and rotten screens of geometrical work, Persian water-jugs for the hands after meals, dull copper incense burners, neither Chinese nor Persian, with friezes of fantastic devils running around them, tarnished silver belts that knotted like rawhide, hairpins of jade, ivory, and plasma, arms of all sorts and kinds, and a thousand other oddments were cased or piled or merely thrown into the room leaving a clear space only round the rickety deal-table where Lurgan Sahib worked. "'These things are nothing,' said his host, following Kim's glance. "'I buy them because they are pretty, and sometimes I sell, if I like the buyer's look. My work is on the table, some of it.' It blazed in the morning light, all red and blue and green flashes, picked out with the vicious blue-white spurt of a diamond here and there. Kim opened his eyes. "'Oh, they are quite well, those stones. It will not hurt them to take the sun. Besides, they are cheap. But with six stones it is very different.' He piled Kim's plate anew. "'There is no one but me can doctor a sick pearl or re-blue turquoises.' I grant you opals. Any fool can cure an opal. But for a sick pearl, there is only me. Suppose I were to die, then there would be no one. Oh, no! You cannot do anything with jewels. It will be quite enough if you understand a little about the turquoise some day. He moved to the end of the veranda to refill the heavy, porous clay water jug from the filter. Do you want drink? Kim nodded. Lurgan Sahib, fifteen feet off, laid one hand on the jar. The next instant it stood at Kim's elbow, full to within half an inch of the brim, the white cloth only showing by a small wrinkle where it had slid into place. "'Wah!' said Kim, in most utter amazement. "'That is magic!' Lurgan Sahib's smile showed that the compliment had gone home. Throw it back. It will break. I say, throw it back. Kim pitched it at random. It fell short and crashed into fifty pieces, while the water dripped through the rough veranda boarding. I said it would break. All one. Look at it. Look at the largest piece. That lay with a sparkle of water in its curve, as it were a star on the floor. Kim looked intently. Lurgan Sahib laid one hand gently on the nape of his neck, stroked it twice or thrice, and whispered, "'Look! It shall come to life again, piece by piece. 
First the big piece will join itself to two others on the right and the left. On the right and the left. Look!" To save his life, Kim could not have turned his head. The light touch held him, as in a vice, and his blood tingled pleasantly through him. There was one large piece of the jar where there had been three, and above them the shadowy outline of the entire vessel. He could see the veranda through it, but it was thickening and darkening with each beat of his pulse. Yet the jar—how slowly the thoughts came—the jar had been smashed before his eyes. Another wave of pricking fire raced down his neck as Lurgam Sahib moved his hand. "'Look! It is coming into shape,' said Lurgan Sahib. So far Kim had been thinking in Hindi, but a tremor came on him, and with an effort like that of a swimmer before sharks, who hurls himself half out of the water, his mind leapt up from a darkness that was swallowing it and took refuge in the multiplication table in English. "'Look, it is coming into shape,' whispered Lurgan Sahib. The jar had been smashed—yes, smashed—not the native word, he would not think of that, but smashed—into fifty pieces, and twice three was six, and thrice three was nine, and four times three was twelve. He clung desperately to the repetition. The shadow outline of the jar cleared like a mist after rubbing eyes. There were the broken shards, there was the spilt water drying in the sun and through the cracks of the veranda showed, all ribbed, the white house-wall below, and thrice twelve was thirty-six. "'Look, is it coming into shape?' asked Lurgan Sahib. "'But it is smashed, smashed!' he gasped. Lurgan Sahib had been muttering softly for the last half-minute. Kim wrenched his head aside. "'Look, Deho, it is there as it was there.' "'It is there.' "'As it was there,' said Lurgan, watching Kim closely while the boy rubbed his neck. "'But you are the first of a many who has ever seen it so.' He wiped his broad forehead. "'Was that more magic?' Kim asked suspiciously. The tingle had gone from his veins. He felt unusually wide awake. "'No, that was not magic. It was only to see if there was—' a flaw in a jewel. Sometimes very fine jewels will fly all to pieces if a man holds them in his hand and knows the proper way. That is why one must be careful before one sets them. Tell me, did you see the shape of the pot? For a little time it began to grow like a flower from the ground. And then what did you do? I mean, how did you think? Oh, uh, I knew it was broken, and so I think that was what I thought, and it was broken. Hmm. Has anyone ever done that same sort of magic to you before? If it was, said Kim, do you think I should let it again? I should run away. And now you are not afraid, eh? Not now. Lurgan Sahib looked at him more closely than ever. "'I shall ask Mahbub Ali. Not now, but some days later,' he muttered. "'I am pleased with you. Yes, I am pleased with you. No. 
You are the first that ever saved himself. I wish I knew what it was that—but you are right. You should not tell that, not even to me." He turned into the dusky gloom of the shop and sat down at the table, rubbing his hands softly. A small husky sob came from behind a pile of carpets. It was the Hindu child, obediently facing towards the wall. His thin shoulders worked with grief. "'Ah, he is jealous, so jealous. I wonder if he will try to poison me again in my breakfast and make me cook it twice.' "'Kubi, kubi nine!' "'Never, never, no!' came the broken answer. "'And whither will he kill this other boy?' "'Kubi, kubi nine!' "'What do you think he will do?' He turned suddenly on Kim. "'Oa, I do not know. Let him go, perhaps. Why did he want to poison you?' "'Because he is so fond of me. Suppose you were fond of someone, and you saw someone come, and the man you were fond of was more pleased with him than he was with you. What would you do?' Kim thought. Lurgan repeated the sentence slowly in the vernacular. I should not poison that man," said Kim reflectively. But I should beat that boy if that boy was fond of my man. But first I would ask that boy if it were true. Ah, he thinks every one must be fond of me. Then I think he is a fool. Hearest thou? said Logram Sahib to the shaking shoulders. The Sahib's son thinks thou art a little fool. Come out, and next time thy heart is troubled. Do not try white arsenic quite so openly. Surely the devil Dasim was lord of our tablecloth that day. It might have made me ill, child. And then a stranger would have guarded the jewels. Come!" The child, heavy-eyed with much weeping, crept out from behind the bale and flung himself passionately at Lurgan Sahib's feet with an extravagance of remorse that impressed even Kim. I will look into the ink-pools. I will faithfully guard the jewels. Oh, my father and my mother, send him away!" He indicated Kim with a backward jerk of his bare heel. "'Not yet, not yet. In a little while he will go away again. But now he is at school, at a new madrisha, and thou shalt be his teacher. Play the play of the jewels against him. I will keep tally. The child dried his tears at once, and dashed to the back of the shop, whence he returned with a copper tray. "'Give me,' he said to Lurgan Sahib, "'let them come from thy hand, for he may say that I knew them before.' "'Gently, gently,' the man replied, and from a drawer under the table dealt a half-handful of clattering trifles onto the tray. "'Now,' said the child, waving an old newspaper, Look on them as long as thou wilt, stranger. Count, and, if need be, handle. One look is enough for me." He turned his back proudly. But what is the game? When thou hast counted and handled, and art sure thou canst remember them all, I cover them with this paper, and thou must tell over the tally to Lurgan Sahib. I will write mine. Oh, ah! The instinct of competition waked in his breast. He bent over the tray. There were but fifteen stones on it. "'That is easy,' he said after a minute. The child slipped the paper over the winking jewels and scribbled in a native account-book. 
there are under that paper five blue stones, one big, one smaller, and three small, said Kim, all in haste. There are four green stones, and one with a hole in it. Then there is one yellow stone that I can see through, and one like a pipe-stem. There are two red stones, and—and I made the count fifteen, but two I have forgotten. No, give me time. Uh, One was of ivory, little and brownish, and—and give me time. One, two. Logan Sahib counted him out up to ten. Kim shook his head. Hear my count, the child burst in, trilling with laughter. First, two are flawed sapphires, one of two ruttis and one of four, as I should judge. The four rutti sapphire is chipped at the edge. There is one Turkestan turquoise, plain with black veins, and there are two inscribed, one with the name of God in gilt, and the other being cracked across, for it came out of an old ring, I cannot read. But we have now all five blue stones. Four flawed emeralds there are, but one is drilled in two places, and one is a little carven. There waits, said Logan Sahib, impassively. Three, five, five, and four rutis, as I judge it. There is one piece of old greenish pipe amber, and a cut topaz from Europe. There is one ruby of Burma, of two rutis, without a flaw, and there is a balas ruby flawed of two rutis. There is a carved ivory from China representing a rat sucking an egg, and there is at last, aha, a ball of crystal, as big as a bean, set on a gold leaf. He clapped his hands at the close. "'He is thy master,' said Lurgan, smiling. "'Huh! He knew the names of the stones,' said Kim, flushing. "'Try again, with common things, such as he and I both know.' They heaped the tray again with odds and ends gathered from the shop, and even the kitchen, and every time the child won, till Kim marvelled. "'Bind my eyes! Let me feel once with my fingers, and even then I will leave thee open-eyed behind,' he challenged. Kim stamped with vexation when the lad made his boast good. "'If it were men or horses,' he said, "'I could do better. This playing with tweezers and knives and scissors is too little.' "'Learn first. Teach later,' said Lurgan Sahib. "'Is he thy master?' "'Truly. But how is it done?' by doing it many times over till it is done perfectly, for it is worth doing." The Hindu boy, in highest feather, actually patted Kim on the back. "'Do not despair,' he said. "'I myself will teach thee.' "'And I will see that thou art well taught,' said Lurgan Sahib, still speaking in the vernacular, "'for except my boy here, it was foolish of him to buy so much white arsenic, when, if he had asked, I could have given it. Except my boy here, I have not in a long time met with one better worth teaching. And there are ten days more, ere thou canst return to Nucklau, where they teach nothing at the long price. We shall, I think, be friends. End of chapter 9, part 1《Kim》by Roger Kipling. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.《Kim》by Roger Kipling. Read by Adrian Pretzelis. 
Chapter Nine, Part Two. They were a most mad ten days, but Kim enjoyed himself too much to reflect on their craziness. In the morning they played the jewel game, sometimes with veritable stones, sometimes with piles of swords and daggers, sometimes with photographs of natives. Through the afternoons he and the Hindu boy would mount guard in the shop, sitting dumb behind a carpet-bale or a screen, and watching Mr. Lurgan's many and very curious visitors. There were small Rajas, escorts coughing in the veranda, who came to buy curiosities, such as phonographs and mechanical toys. There were ladies in search of necklaces, and men, it seemed to Kim, but his mind may have been vitiated by early training, in search of the ladies. Natives from independent and feudatory courts whose ostensible business was the repair of broken necklaces, rivers of light poured out upon the table, but whose true end seemed to be to raise money for angry Maharanis or young Rajas. There were Babus whom Lurgan Sahib talked with austerity and authority, but at the end of each interview he gave them money in coined silver and currency and currency notes. There were occasional gatherings of long-coated theatrical natives who discussed metaphysics in English and Bengali, to Mr. Lorgan's great edification. He was always interested in religions. At the end of the day Kim and the Hindu boy, whose name varied at Lorgan's pleasure, were expected to give a detailed account of all that they had seen and heard. Their view of each man's character, as shown in his face, talk, and manner, and their notions of his real errand. After dinner Lurgan Sahib's fancy turned more to what might be called dressing up, in which game he took a most informing interest. He could paint faces to a marvel with a brush-dab here and a line there, changing them past recognition. The shop was full of all manner of dresses and turbans, and Kim was apparelled variously as a young Mohammedan of good family, an oil-man, and once, which was a joyous evening, as the son of an old landowner, in the fullest of full dress. Lugan Sahib had a hawk's eye to detect the least flaw in the make-up, and lying in a worn teak-wood couch would explain by the half-hour together how such-and-such such a caste talked, or walked, or coughed, or spat, or sneezed, and since howls matter little in this world, the why of everything. The Hindu child played this game clumsily. That little mind, keen as an icicle where tally of jewels was concerned, could not temper itself to enter another's soul. But a demon in Kim woke up and sang with joy as he put on the changing dresses and changed speech and gesture therewith. Carried away by enthusiasm, he volunteered to show Lurgan Sahib one evening how the disciples of a certain caste of fakir, old Lahore acquaintances, begged doles by the roadside, and what sort of language he would use to an Englishman, to a Punjabi farmer going to a fair, and to a woman without a veil. Lurgan Sahib laughed immensely, and begged Kim to stay as he was, immobile, for half an hour cross-legged, ash-smeared, and wild-eyed in the back room. At the end of that time entered a hulking, obese babu, whose stockinged legs shook with fat, 
and Kim opened on him with a shower of wayside chaff. Lurgan Sahib, uh, this annoyed Kim, watched the babu and not the play. "'I think,' said the babu heavily, lighting a cigarette, "'I am of opinion that it is most extraordinary and efficient performance. "'Except that you had told me I should have opined that, that, that you were pulling my legs. "'How soon can he become approximately efficient chain-man? "'Because then I shall indent for him.' "'That is what he must learn at Lucknow.' "'Then order him to be jolly damn quick. Good night, Lurgum. The babu swung out with the gait of a bogged cow. When they were telling over the day's list of visitors, Lurgan Sahib asked Kim who he thought the man might be. "'God knows,' said Kim cheerily. The tone might almost have deceived Mahbub Ali, but it failed entirely with the healer of sick pearls. "'That is true. God he knows. But I wish to know what you think.' Kim glanced sideways at his companion, whose eye had a way of compelling truth. "'I think—I—I I think he will want me when I come from the school, but—confidentially, as Lurgan Sahib nodded approval—I do not understand how he can wear many dresses and talk many tongues.' "'Thou wilt understand many things later. He is a writer of tales for a certain colonel. His honour is great only in Simla, and it is noticeable that he has no name, but only a number and a letter. That is a custom among us.' "'And is there a price upon his head, too, as upon my—all the others?' "'Not yet. But if a boy rose up who is now sitting here and went—look, the door is open as far as a certain house, with a red-painted veranda behind that which was the old theatre in the lower bazaar, and whispered through the shutters, Hari Chanda Mukherjee bore the bad news of last month. That boy might take away a belt full of rupees. How many? said Kim promptly. Five hundred? A thousand? As many as he might ask for. Good. And for how long might such a boy live after the news was told? He smiled merrily at Lurgan Sahib's very beard. Ah, that is well thought of. Perhaps if he were very clever, he might live out the day, but not the night, by no means the night. Then what is the Babu's pay if so much is put upon his head? Eighty, perhaps a hundred, perhaps a hundred and fifty rupees. But the pay is the least part of the work. From time to time God causes men to be born, and thou art one of them, who have a lust to go abroad at the risk of their lives and discover news. Today it may be of far-off things, tomorrow of some hidden mountain, and the next day of some nearby men who have done a foolishness against the State. These souls are very few and of these few not more than ten are of the best. Among these ten I count the Babu, and that is curious. How great, therefore, and desirable must be a business that brazens the heart of a Bengali! True, 
but the days go slowly for me. I am yet a boy, and it is only within two months I learn to write Angrizi. Even now I cannot read it well. And there are yet years and years and long years before I can be even a chain-man. Have patience, friend of all the world. Kim startled at the title. Would I had a few of the years that irk thee so. I have proved thee in several small ways. This will not be forgotten when I make my report to the Colonel Sahib. Then, changing suddenly into English, with a deep laugh, By Jove, O'Hara, I think there is a great deal in you, and you must not become proud, and you must not talk. You must go back to Lucknow and be a good little boy and mind your book, as the English say, and perhaps next holidays, if you care, you can come back to me. Kim's face fell. Oh, I mean, if you like. I know where you want to go. Four days later a seat was booked for Kim and his small trunk at the rear of a Kalkatonga. His companion was the whale-like Babu, who, with a fringed shawl wrapped round his head and his fat open-work stockinged left leg tucked under him, shivered and grunted in the morning chill. "'How comes it that this man is one of us?' thought Kim, considering the jelly back as they jolted down the road and the reflections threw himself into most pleasant daydreams. Lurgan Sahib had given him five rupees, a splendid sum, as well as the assurance of his protection if he worked. Unlike Mahbub, Lurgan Sahib had spoken most explicitly of the reward that would follow obedience, and Kim was content. If only, like the Babu, he could enjoy the dignity of a letter and a number, and a price upon his head. Some day he would be all that and more. Some day he might be almost as great as Mahbub Ali. The housetops of his search should be half India. He would follow kings and ministers, as in the old days he followed vakils and lawyers' touts across Lahore City for Mahbub Ali's sake. Meantime there was the present and not at all unpleasant fact of St. Xavier's immediately before him. There would be new boys to condescend to, and there would be tales of holiday adventures to hear. Young Martin, son of the tea-planter at Manipur, had boasted that he would go to war with a rifle against the head-hunters. That might be, but it was certain that young Martin had not been blown half across the forecourt of a Patiala palace by an explosion of fireworks, nor had he— Kim fell to telling himself the story of his own adventures through the last three months. He could paralyze St. Xavier's, even the biggest boys who shaved, with the recital, were that permitted. But it was, of course, out of the question. There would be a price upon his head in good time, as Lurgan Sahib had assured him, and if he talked foolishly now, not only would that price never be set, but Colonel Crichton would cast him off, and he would be left to the wrath of Lurgan Sahib and Mahbub Ali for the short space of life that would remain to him. "'So I should choose Delhi for the sake of a fish,' was his proverbial philosophy. It behooved him to forget his holidays. There would always remain the fun of inventing imaginary adventures, and, as Lurgan Sahib had said, to work." Of all the boys hurrying back to St. Xavier's from Sakur 
in the sands of Gali beneath the palms, none was so full with virtue as Kimball O'Hara, gigoting down to Ambala, behind Hari Chandar Mukherjee, whose name on the books of one section of the ethnological survey was R-17. And if additional spur were needed, the Babu supplied it. After a huge meal at Kalka, he spoke uninterruptedly. Was Kim going to school? Then he, an M.A. of Calcutta University, would explain the advantages of education. There were marks to be gained by due attention to Latin and Wordsworth excursion. All this was Greek to Kim. French, too, was vital, and the best was to be picked up at Chandanagur, a few miles from Calcutta. Also, a man might go far, as he himself had done, by strict attention to plays called Lear and Julius Caesar, both much in demand by examiners. Lear was not so full of historical allusions as Julius Caesar. The book cost four annas, and could be bought second-hand in Bow Bazaar for two. Still, more importantly than Wordsworth, or the eminent authors Burke and Hare, was the art and science of mensuration. A boy who had passed his examination in these branches, for which, by the way, there were no cram-books, could, by merely marching over a country with a compass and a level and a straight eye, carry away a picture of that country which might be sold for large sums in coined silver. But as it was occasionally inexpedient to carry about measuring chains, a boy would do well to know the precise length of his own foot-pace, so that when he was deprived of what Hari Chanda called adventitious aids, he might still tread his distances. To keep count of thousands of paces, Hari Chanda's experience had shown him nothing more valuable than a rosary of eighty-one or a hundred and eight beads. For it was divisible and subdivisible into many multiples and sub-multiples. Through the volleying drifts of English, Kim caught the general trend of the talk, and it interested him very much. Here was a new craft that a man could tuck away in his head, and by the look of the large wide world unfolding itself before him, it seemed the more a man knew, the better for him. Said the Babu, when he had talked for an hour and a half, "'I hope some day to enjoy your official acquaintance.' Ad interim, if I may be pardoned that expression, I shall give you this beetle-box, which is highly valuable article, and cost me two rupees only four years ago. It was a cheap, heart-shaped thing, with three compartments for carrying the eternal beetle-nut, lime, and pan-leaf, but it was filled with little tabuloid bottles. That is reward of merit for your performance in character of that holy man. You see, you are so young you think you will last for ever, and not take care of your body. It is great nuisance to go sick in the middle of business. I am fond of drugs myself, and they are handy to cure poor people, too. These are good departmental drugs—quinine and so on. I give it to you for souvenir. Now, good-bye. I have urgent private business here by the roadside. He slipped out noiselessly as a cat on the Umbala road, hailed a passing cart, and jingled away, while Kim, tongue-tied, twiddled the brass beetle-box in his hands. 
The record of a boy's education interests few save his parents, and, as you know, Kim was an orphan. It is written in the books of St. Xavier's in Partibus that a report of Kim's progress was forwarded at the end of each term to Colonel Crichton and to Father Victor, from whose hands duly came the money for his schooling. It is further recorded in the same books that he showed a great aptitude for mathematical studies as well as map-making, and carried away a prize, the life of Lord Lawrence, tree-calf, two vols, nine rupees, eight annas, for proficiency therein, and the same term played in the St. Xavier's Eleven against the Alagur Mohammedan College, his age being fourteen years and ten months. He was also re-vaccinated, from which we may assume that there had been another epidemic of smallpox at Lucknow about the same time. Pencil notes in the edge of an old muster-roll recall that he was punished several times for conversing with improper persons, and it seems that he was once sentenced to heavy pains for absenting himself for a day in the company of a street-beggar. That was when he got over the gate and pleaded with the lama through a whole day down the banks of the Gumpti to accompany him on the road next holidays, for one month, for a little week, and the lama set his face as a flint against it, averring that the time had not yet come. Kim's business, said the old man, as they ate cakes together, was to get all the wisdom of the sahibs, and then he would see. The hand of friendship must in some way have averted the whip of calamity. For six weeks later Kim seems to have passed an examination in elementary surveying, with great credit, his age being fifteen years and eight months. From this date the record is silent. His name does not appear in the year's batch of those who entered the subordinate survey of India, but against it stands the words, Removed on Appointment. Several times in those three years, cast up at the temple of the Tirthankars in Benares, the lama, a little thinner and a shade yellower, if that were possible, but gentle and untainted as ever. Sometimes it was from the south that he came, from south of Tutikorin, whence the wonderful fireboats go to Ceylon, where are priests who know Pali. Sometimes it was from the wet green west, and the thousand cotton factory chimneys that rim Bombay. And once from the north, where he had doubled back eight hundred miles to talk for a day with the keeper of the images in the Wonder House. He would stride to his cell in the cool, cut marble—the priests of the temple were good to the old man—wash off the dust of travel, make prayer, and depart for Lucknow, well accustomed now to the ways of the rail, in a third-class carriage. Returning, it was noticeable, as his friend the keeper pointed out to the head-priest, that he ceased for a while to mourn the loss of his river, or to draw wondrous pictures of the wheel of life but preferred to talk of the beauty and wisdom of a certain mysterious chela, whom no man of the temple had ever seen. Yet he had followed the traces of the blessed feet throughout all India. The curator has still in his possession a most marvellous account of his wanderings and meditations. There remained nothing more in life but to find the river of the arrow. 
Yet it was shown to him in his dreams that it was a matter not to be undertaken with any hope of success, unless that seeker had with him one Chela, appointed to bring the event to a happy issue, and versed in great wisdom, such wisdom as the white-haired keeper of images possess. For example, here came out the snuff-gourd, and the kindly Jane priests made haste to be silent. Long and long ago, when Devadatta was king of Benares, let all listen to the Jataka. An elephant was captured for a time by the king's hunters, and ere he broke free, be ringed with a grievous leg iron. Still, this he strove to remove with hate and frenzy in his heart, and hurrying up and down the forests, besought his brother elephants to wrench it asunder. One by one, with their strong trunks, they tried and failed. At the last, they gave it as their opinion that the ring was not to be broken by any bestial power. And in a thicket, new-born, wet with the moisture of birth, lay a day-old calf of the herd, whose mother had died. The fetid elephant, forgetting his own agony, said, if I do not help this suckling, it will perish under our feet. So he stood above the young thing, making his legs buttresses against the uneasy-moving herd, and he begged milk of a virtuous cow. And the calf throve, and the ringed elephant was the calf's guide and defence. Now the days of an elephant, let all listen to the Jataka, are thirty-five years to his full strength, and through thirty-five rains the ringed elephant befriended the younger, and all the while the fetter ate into the flesh. Then one day the young elephant saw the half-buried iron, and turning to the elder said, What is this? It is even my sorrow, said he who had befriended him. Then that other put out his trunk, and in the twinkling of an eyelash abolished the ring, saying, the appointed time has come. So the virtuous elephant, who had waited temperately and done kind acts, was relieved at the appointed time by the very calf whom he had turned aside to cherish. Let all listen to the Jataka, for the elephant was Ananda, and the calf that broke the ring was none other than the Lord himself. Then he would shake his head benignly, and over the ever-clicking rosary point out how free that elephant calf was from the sin of pride. 
He was as humble as a chela, who, seeing his master sitting in the dust outside the gates of learning, overleapt the gates, though they were locked, and took his master to his heart in the presence of the proud-stomached city. Rich would be the reward of such a master and such a chela when the time came for them to seek freedom together. So did the lama speak, coming and going across India as softly as a bat. A sharp-tongued old woman in a house among the fruit-trees behind Saranapur honoured him as the woman honoured the prophet. But his chamber was by no means upon the wall. In an apartment of the forecourt, overlooked by cooing doves, he would sit, while she laid aside her useless veil, and chattered of spirits and fiends of Kulu, of grandchildren unborn, and of the free-tongued brat who had talked to her in the resting-place. Once, too, he strayed alone from the Grand Trunk Road below Umbala to the very village whose priest had tried to drug him. But the kind heaven that guards lamas sent him at twilight through the crops, absorbed and unsuspicious, to the Rissaldar's door. Here was like to have been a grave misunderstanding, for the old soldier asked him why the friend of the stars had gone that way only six days before. "'That may not be,' said the lama. "'He has gone back to his own people.' He sat in that corner telling a hundred merry tales five nights ago, his host insisted. True, he vanished somewhat suddenly in the dawn after foolish talk with my granddaughter. He grows apace, but he is the same friend of the stars as brought me true word of the war. Have ye parted? Yes and no, the lama replied. We, we have not altogether parted. But the time is not ripe that we should take the road together. He acquires wisdom in another place. We must wait. All one. But if it were not the boy, how did he come to speak so continually of thee? And what said he? asked the lama eagerly. Sweet words. An hundred thousand, that thou art his father and mother and such all. Pity that he does not take the Queen's service. He is fearless." This news amazed the lama, who did not then know how religiously Kim kept to the contract made with Mahbub Ali and perforce ratified by Colonel Crichton. "'There is no holding the young pony from the game,' said the horse-dealer, when the Colonel pointed out that vagabonding over India in holiday-time was absurd. "'If permission be refused to go and come as he chooses, he will make light of the refusal. Then who is to catch him? Colonel Sahib, only once in a thousand years is a horse born so well fitted for the game as this our colt. And we need men. End of chapter 9This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Kim by Rudyard Kipling. Read by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter 10 Your tearsel's too long at hack, sire. He's no ias, but a passage-hawk, that footed ere we caught him. 
dangerously free of the air. Faith! Were he mine, as mine's the glove he binds to for his tirings, I'd fly him with a make-hawk. He's in Yarrock, plumed to the very point, so weathered. Give him the firmament God made for him, and what shall take the air of him? Gow's Watch Lugan Sahib did not use as direct speech, but his advice tallied with Mahbub's, and the upshot was good for Kim. He knew better now than to leave Lucknow City in native garb, and if Mahbub were anywhere within the reach of a letter it was to Mahbub's camp he headed, and made his change under the Pathan's wary eye. Could the little survey paint-box that he used for map-tinting in term-time have found a tongue to tell of holiday doings, he might have been expelled. Once Mahbub and he went together as far as the beautiful city of Bombay, with three truckloads of tram-horses, and Mahbub nearly melted when Kim proposed to sail in a dhow across the Indian Ocean to buy Gulf Arabs, which, he understood from a hanger-on of the dealer Abdul Rahman, fetched better prices than mere Kabulis. He dipped his hand into the dish with that great trader when Mahbub and a few co-religionists were invited to a big Hajj dinner. They came back by way of Karachi by sea when Kim took his first experience of seasickness on the forehatch of a coasting steamer, well persuaded he had been poisoned. The Barboob's famous drug-box proved useless, though Kim had restocked it at Bombay. Mahbub had business at Quetta, and there Kim, as Mahbub admitted, earned his keep, and perhaps a little over, by spending four curious days as scullion in the house of a fat commissariat sergeant, from whose office-box, in an auspicious moment, he removed a little vellum ledger which he copied out—it seemed to deal entirely with cattle and camel sales—by moonlight, lying behind an outhouse all through one hot night. Then he returned the ledger to its place, and, at Mahbub's word, left that service unpaid, rejoining him six miles down the road, the clean copy in his bosom. "'That soldier is a small fish,' Mahbub Ali explained. "'But in time we shall catch the larger one. He only sells oxen at two prices, one for himself and one for the government, which I do not think is a sin.' "'Why could I not take away the little book and be done with it?' Then he would have been frightened, and he would have told his master. Then we should miss, perhaps, a great number of new rifles which seek their way up from Quetta to the north. The game is so large that one sees but a little at a time. Oho, said Kim, and held his tongue. That was in the monsoon holidays, after he had taken the prize for mathematics. The Christmas holidays he spent, deducting ten days for private amusements, with Lurgan Sahib, where he sat for the most part in front of a roaring wood fire. Jacko Road was four feet deep in snow that year, and—the small Hindu had gone away to be married—helped Lurgan to thread pearls. 
he made Kim learn whole chapters of the Koran by heart, till he could deliver them with the very roll and cadence of a mullah. Moreover, he told Kim the names and properties of many native drugs, as well as the runes proper to recite when you administer them. And in the evenings he wrote charms on parchment, elaborate pentagrams crowned with the names of devils, Mura and Awen the champion of kings, all fantastically written in the corners. More to the point, he advised Kim as to the care of his own body, the cure of fever fits, and simple remedies of the road. A week before it was time to go down, Colonel Crichton Sahib—this was unfair—sent Kim a written examination paper that concerned itself solely with rods and chains, and links and angles. Next holidays he was out with Mahbub, and here, by the way, he nearly died of thirst, plodding through the sand on a camel to the mysterious city of Bikanir, where the wells are four hundred feet deep, and lined throughout with camel-bone. It was not an amusing trip, from Kim's point of view, because, in defiance of the contract, the Colonel ordered him to make a map of that wild, walled city. And since Mohammedan horse-boys and pipe-tenders are not expected to drag survey-chains round the capital of an independent native state, Kim was forced to pace all his distances by means of a bead-rosary. He used the compass for bearings as occasion served, after dark chiefly, when the camels had been fed, and by the help of his little survey paint-box of six colour-cakes and three brushes, he achieved something not remotely unlike the city of Jaisalmir. Mahbub laughed a great deal, and advised him to make up a written report as well. And in the back of the big account-book that lay under the flap of Mahbub's pet saddle, Kim fell to work. "'It must hold everything that thou hast seen or touched or considered, right as though the Jangilat Sahib himself had come by stealth with a vast army, outsetting to war.' "'How great an army!' "'Oh, half a lakh of men!' Folly! Remember how few and bad were the wells in the sand. Not a thousand thirsty men could come nearby here. Then write that down. Also, all the old breaches in the walls, and whence the firewood is cut, and what is the temper and disposition of the king. I come here till all my horses are sold. I will hire a room by the gateway, and thou shalt be my accountant." There is a good lock to the door. The report, in its unmistakable St. Xavier's running script, and the brown, yellow, and lake-daubed map, was on hand a few years ago. A careless clerk filed it with the rough notes of E-23's second Seistan survey. But by now the pencil characters must be almost illegible. Kim translated it sweating under the light of an oil-lamp, to Mahbub, the second day of their return journey. The Pathan rose and stooped over his dappled saddle-bags. "'I knew it would be worthy a dress of honour, and so I made one ready,' he said, smiling. "'Were I Amir of Afghanistan, and some day we may see him, 
I would fill thy mouth with gold. He laid the garments formally at Kim's feet. There was a gold-embroidered peshwar turban cap rising to a cone, and a big turban cloth ending in a fringe of gold. Then there was a Delhi-embroidered waistcoat to slip over a milky white shirt, fastening to the right, ample and flowing, green pyjamas with twisted silk waist-string, and that nothing may be lacking, Russia leather slippers, smelling divinely, with arrogantly curled tips. Upon a Wednesday, and in the morning, to put on new clothes is auspicious, said Mahbub solemnly. But we must not forget the wicked folk in the world, so— He capped all the splendour that was taking Kim's delighted breath away with a mother-of-pearl, nickel-plated, self-extracting, point four five zero revolver. I had thought of a smaller bore, but reflected that this takes government bullets. A man can always come by those, especially across the border. Stand up and, and let me look. He clapped Kim on the shoulder. May you never be tired, Pathan. Oh, the hearts to be broken. Oh, the eyes under the eyelashes looking sideways. Kim turned about, pointed his toes, stretched, and felt mechanically for the moustache that was just beginning. Then he stooped towards Mahbub's feet to make proper acknowledgment with fluttering, quick-patting hands, his heart too full for words. Mahbub forestalled and embraced him. "'My son,' said he, "'what need of words between us? But is not the little gun a delight? All six cartridges come out at one twist. It is born in the bosom next the skin, which, as it were, keeps it oiled. Never put it elsewhere, and, please God, thou shalt some day kill a man with it. "'Hi, my!' said Kim ruefully. "'If a sahib kills a man, he is hanged in the jail.' "'True, but one pace beyond the border. Men are wiser. Put it away, but fill it first. Of what use is a gun unfed?' "'When I go back to the Madrisha, I must return it. They do not allow little guns. Thou wilt keep it for me?' "'Son!' I am wearied of that madrisha, where they take the best years of a man to teach him what he can only learn upon the road. The folly of the sahibs has neither top nor bottom. No matter. Maybe thy written report shall save thee further bondage. And God, he knows we need men more and more in the game. They marched, jaw-bound against blowing sand, across the salt desert, to Jodhpur, where Mahbub and his handsome nephew Habib Ullah did much trading, and there, sorrowfully in European clothes, which he was fast outgrowing, Kim went second class to St. Xavier's. Three weeks later, Colonel Crichton, pricing Tibetan ghost daggers at Lurgan's shop, faced Mahbub Ali openly mutinous. Lurgan Sahib operated as support in reserve. The pony is made, finished, mouthed, and paste, Sahib. From now on, 
Day by day he will lose his manners if he is kept at tricks. Drop the rein on his back and let go, said the horse-dealer. We need him. But he is so young, Mahbub. Not more than sixteen, is he? When I was fifteen, I had shot my man and begot my man, Sahib. You impenitent old heathen! Crichton turned to Lurgan. The black beard nodded assent to the wisdom of the Afghan's dyed scarlet. I should have used him long ago, said Lurgan. The younger, the better. That is why I always have my really valuable jewels watched by a child. You sent him to me to try. I tried him in every way. He is the only boy I could not make see things. In the crystal? In the ink-pool? demanded Mahbub. No, under my hand, as I told you. That has never happened before. It means that he is strong enough. But you think it skittles, Colonel Crichton, to make any one do anything he wants. And that is three years ago. I have taught him a good deal since, Colonel Crichton. I think you waste him now. Hm. Maybe you're right. But, as you know, there is no survey work for him at present. Let him out, let him go, Mahbub interrupted. Who expects any colt to carry heavy weight at first? Let him run with the caravans, like our white camel colts, for luck. I would take him out myself, but— There is a little business where he would be most useful in the south, said Lurgan, with particular suavity, dropping his heavy blued eyelids. E-23 has that in hand, said Crichton quickly. He must not go down there. Besides, he knows no turkey. Only tell him the shape and the smell of the letters we want, and he will bring them back. Lurgan insisted. "'Now, that is a man's job,' said Crichton. It was a wry-necked matter of unauthorized and incendiary correspondence between a person who claimed to be the ultimate authority in all matters of the Mohammedan religion throughout the world, and a younger member of a royal house who had been brought to book for kidnapping women within British territory. The Moslem archbishop had been emphatic and over-arrogant. The young prince was merely sulky at the curtailment of his privileges, but there was no need he should continue a correspondence which might some day compromise him. One letter, indeed, had been procured, but the finder was later found dead by the roadside in the habit of an Arab trader, as E-23, taking up the work, duly reported. These facts, and a few others not to be published, made both Mahbub and Crichton shake their heads. "'Let him go out with his red llama," said the horse-dealer, with visible effort. "'He is fond of the old man. He can learn his paces by the rosary, at least.' "'I have had some dealings with the old man by letter,' said Colonel Crichton, smiling to himself. "'Whither goes he?' "'Up and down the land.' As he has these three years, he seeks a river of healing. God's curse upon all! Mahbub checked himself. He beds down at the temple of the Tirthankars, or at Buddha when he is in from the road. Then he goes to see the boy at the Madrisha. As we know, 
for the boy was punished for it twice or thrice. He is quite mad, but a peaceful man. I have met him. The Babu also has had dealings with him. We have watched him for three years. Red Lamas are not so common in Hind that one loses track. Babus are very curious, said Lurgan meditatively. Do you know what Hari Babu really wants? He wants to be made a member of the Royal Society by taking ethnological notes. I tell you, I tell him about the Lama everything which Mahbub and the boy have told me. Hari Babu goes down to Banaris at his own expense, I think. I don't, said Crichton briefly. He had paid Hari's travelling expenses out of a most lively curiosity to learn what the Lama might be. And he applies to the Lama for information on Lamaism and devil dances and spells and charms several times in these few years. Holy Virgin! I could have told him all that years ago. I think Hari Babu is getting too old for the road. He likes better to collect manners and customs information. Yes, he wants to be an F.R.S. Hari thinks well of the boy, doesn't he? Oh, very indeed. We have had some pleasant evenings at my little place. But I think it would be waste to throw him away with Hari on the ethnological side. Not for a first experience. How does that strike you, Mahbub? Let the boy run with the Lama for six months. After that we can see. He will get experience. He has it already, Sahib, as a fish controls the water he swims in. But for every reason it will be well to loose him from the school. Very good, then, said Crichton, half to himself. He can go with the Lama, and if Hari Babu cares to keep an eye on them, so much the better. He won't lead the boy into any danger as Mahbub would. Curious, his wish to be an F.R.S. Very human, too. He is the best on the ethnological side, Hari. No money and no preferment would have drawn Crichton from his work on the Indian survey, but deep in his heart also lay the ambition to write F.R.S. after his name. Honours of a sort he knew could be obtained by ingenuity and the help of friends, but to the best of his belief nothing save work, papers representing a life of it, took a man into the society which he had bombarded for years with monographs on strange Asiatic cults and unknown customs. Nine men out of ten would flee from a royal society soiree in extremity of boredom. But Crichton was the tenth, and at times his soul yearned for the crowded rooms in easy London, where silver-haired, bald-headed gentlemen, who know nothing of the army, move among spectroscopic experiments, the lesser plants of the frozen tundras, electric flight-measuring machines, and apparatus for slicing into fractional millimetres the left eye of the female mosquito. By all right and reason it was the Royal Geographical that should have appealed to him, but men are as chancy as children in their choice of playthings. So Crichton smiled and thought the better of Hari Babu, moved by like desire. He dropped the ghost-dagger and looked up at Mahbub. "'How soon can we get the colt from the stable?' 
said the horse-dealer, reading his eyes. Hmm. If I withdraw him by order now, what will he do, think you? I have never before assisted at the teaching of such a one. He will come to me, said Mabu promptly. Lurgan Sahib and I will prepare him for the road. So be it, then. For six months he shall run at his choice. But who will be his sponsor? Lurgan slightly inclined his head. He will not tell anything, if that is what you are afraid of, Colonel Creighton. It's only a boy, after all. Yes, but first he has nothing to tell, and secondly he knows what would happen. Also, he is very fond of Mahbub, and of me a little. Will he draw pay? demanded the practical horse-dealer. Food and water allowance only are twenty rupees a month. One advantage of the Secret Service is that it has no worrying audit. That service is ludicrously starved, of course, but the funds are administered by a few men who do not call for vouchers or present itemized accounts. Mahbub's eyes lighted with almost a Sikh's love of money. Even Lurgan's impassive face changed. He considered the years to come when Kim would have been entered and made to the great game that never ceases day and night throughout India. He foresaw honour and credit in the mouths of a chosen few coming to him from his pupil. Lurgan Sahib had made E-23 what E-23 was out of a bewildered, impertinent, lying little northwest province man. But the joys of these masters was pale and smoky beside the joy of Kim when St. Xavier's head called him aside with word that Colonel Crichton had sent for him. I understand, O'Hara, that he has found you a place as an assistant chain-man in the canal department. That comes of taking up mathematics. It is great luck for you, for you're only sixteen, but of course you understand that you do not become pucker—permanent till you have passed the autumn examination. So you must not think you are going out into the world to enjoy yourself, or that your fortune is made. There is a great deal of hard work before you. Only if you succeed in becoming pucker you can rise, you know, to four hundred and fifty a month." Whereat the principal gave him much good advice as to his conduct and his manners and his morals and others, his elders, who had not been wafted into billets, talked only as Anglo-Indian lads can of favouritism and corruption. Indeed, young Cazalet, whose father was a pensioner at Chanor, hinted very broadly that Colonel Crichton's interest in Kim was directly paternal, and Kim, instead of retaliating, did not even use language. He was thinking of the immense fun to come, of Mahbub's letter of the day before, all neatly written in English, making appointment for that afternoon in a house the very name of which would have crisped the principal's hair with horror. Said Kim to Mahbub in Lucknow railway station that evening, above the luggage scales, I feared lest, at the last, the roof would fall on me and cheat me. Is it indeed all finished, O oh my father? Mahbub snapped his fingers to show the utterness of that end, and his eyes blazed like red coals. "'Then where is the pistol that I may wear it?' "'Softly. A half-year. 
to run without heel-ropes. I beg that much from Colonel Crichton Sahib. At twenty rupees a month, old Red Hat knows that thou art coming. I will pay thee dasturi, commission, on my pay for three months, said Kim gravely. Yea, two rupees a month, but first we must get rid of these. He plucked his thin linen trousers and dragged at his collar. I have brought with me all that I need on the road. My trunk has gone up to Lurgan Sahib's. Who sends his salams to thee, Sahib? Lurgan Sahib is a very clever man, but what dost thou do? I go north again, upon the great game. What else? Is thy mind still set on following the old Red Hat? Do not forget he made me that I am, though he did not know it. Year by year he sent the money that taught me. I would have done as much, had it struck my thick head, Mahbub growled. Come away, the lamps are lit now, and none will mark thee in the bazaar. We go to Hanifa's house. On the way thither Mahbub gave him much the same sort of advice as his mother gave to Lemuel and, curiously enough, Mahbub was exact to point out how Hanifa and her likes destroyed kings. "'And I remember,' he quoted maliciously, "'one who said, "'Trust a snake before a harlot, "'and a harlot before a Pathan, Mahbub Ali. "'Now, excepting as to Pathans, of whom I am one, "'all that is true.' most true is it in the great game for it is by means of women that all plans come to ruin and we lie out in the dawning with our throats cut so it happened to such a one he gave the reddest particulars then why kim paused before a filthy staircase that climbed to the warm darkness of an upper chamber in the ward that is behind azim ullah's tobacco shop those who know it call it the bird-cage. It is so full of whisperings and whistlings and chirrupings. The room, with its dirty cushions and half-smoked hookers, smelled abominably of stale tobacco. In one corner lay a huge and shapeless woman clad in greenish gauzes, and decked brow, nose, ear, neck, wrist, arm, waist, and ankle with heavy native jewellery. When she turned it was like the clashing of copper pots. A lean cat in the balcony outside the window mewed hungrily. Kim checked, bewildered, at the door-curtain. "'Is that the new stuff, Mahbub?' said Hanifa lazily, scarcely troubling to remove the mouthpiece from her lips. "'Oh, Bakhtanus! Like most of her kind, she swore by the jinns. Oh, Bactanus, he is very good to look upon. That is part of the selling of the horse, Mahbub explained to Kim, who laughed. I have heard that talk since my sixth day, he replied, squatting by the light. Whither does it lead? To protection. To-night we change thy colour. This sleeping under roofs has blanched thee like an almond. But Hanifa has the secret of a colour that catches, no painting of a day or two. Also, we fortify thee against the chances of the road. 
That is my gift to thee, my son. Take out all the metals on thee and lay them here. Make ready, Hanifa. Kim dragged forth his compass, survey paint-box, and the new-filled medicine-box. They had all accompanied his travels, and boy-like he valued them immensely. The woman rose slowly, and moved with her hands a little spread before her. Then Kim saw that she was blind. "'No, no,' she muttered. "'The Pathan speaks truth. My colour does not go in a week or a month, and those who I protect are under strong guard. When one is far off and alone, it would not be well to grow blotched and leprous of a sudden.' said Mahbub. "'When thou wast with me, I could oversee the matter. Besides, a Pathan is a fair skin. Strip to the waist now, and look how thou art whitened.' Hanifa felt her way back from an inner room. "'It is no matter. She cannot see.' He took a pewter bowl from her ringed hand. The dye-stuff showed blue and gummy. Kim experimented on the back of his wrist with a dab of cotton wool, but Hanifa heard him. "'No, no!' she cried. "'The thing is not done thus, but with the proper ceremonies. The colouring is the least part. I give thee the full protection of the road.' "'Jadu, magic,' said Kim, with a half-start. He did not like the white, sightless eyes. Mahbub's hand on his neck bowed him to the floor nose within an inch of the boards. "'Be still. No harm comes to thee, my son. I am thy sacrifice.' He could not see what the woman was about, but heard the clish-clash of her jewellery for many minutes. A match lit up the darkness. He caught the well-known purr and fizzle of grains of incense. Then the room filled with smoke, heavy, aromatic, and stupefying. Through growing drowse he heard the names of devils, of Zulbazan, son of Eblis, who lives in bazaars, and Paros, making all the sudden lewd wickedness of wayside halts, of Dulhan, invisible about mosques, the dweller among the slippers of the faithful, who hinders folks from their prayers, of Musput, lord of lies and panic. Hanifa, now whispering in his ear, now talking as from an immense distance, touched him with horrible soft fingers, but Mahbub's grip never shifted from his neck till, relaxing with a sigh, the boy lost his senses. "'Allah! How he fought! We should never have done it but for the drugs. That was his white blood, I take it,' said Mahbub testily. Go on with the Dawat invocation. Give him full protection. O oh, hearer, thou that hearest with ears be present. Listen, O oh, hearer, Hanifa moaned, her dead eyes turned to the west. The dark room filled with moanings and snortings. From the outer balcony a ponderous figure raised a round bullet head and coughed nervously. "'Do not interrupt this ventriloquial necromancist, my friend,' it said in English. "'I opine it is very disturbing to you, but no enlightened observer is jolly well upset.' "'I will lay a plot for their ruin, O prophet. 
Bear with the unbelievers. Let them alone a while. Hanifa's face, turned to the northward, worked horribly, and it was though voices from the ceiling answered her. Hari Babu returned to his notebook, balanced on the window-sill, but his hand shook. Hanifa, in some sort of drugged ecstasy, wrenched herself to and fro as she sat cross-legged by Kim's still head, and called upon devil after devil in the ancient order of the ritual, binding them to avoid the boy's every action. "'With him are the keys of the secret things. None knoweth them beside himself. He knoweth that which is in the dry land and in the sea.' Again broke out the unearthly whistling responses. "'I apprehend it is not all malignant in this operation,' said the Babu, watching the throat-muscles quiver and jerk as Hanifa spoke with tongues. "'It is not likely that she had killed the boy. If so, I decline to be witness at the trial. What was the latest hypothetical devil mentioned?' "'Babuji,' said Mahbub in the vernacular, "'I have no regard for the devils of the Hind, but the sons of Eblis are far otherwise, and whether they are Jamali, well affected, or Jalali, terrible. They love not Kafirs.' "'Then you think I had better go?' said Hari Babu, half-rising. "'They are, of course, dematerialized phenomena. Spencer says—' Hanifa's crisis passed, as these things must, in a paroxysm of howling, with a touch of froth at the lips. She lay spent and motionless beside Kim, and the crazy voices ceased. "'Wah! That work is done. May the boy be better for it. And Hanifa is surely a mistress of Dawat. Help haul her aside, Babu. Do not be afraid.' "'How am I to fear the absolutely non-existent?' said Hari Babu, talking English to restore himself. It is an awful thing still to dread the magic that you contemptuously investigate, to collect folklore for the Royal Society with a lively belief in all powers of darkness. Mahbub chuckled. He had been out with Hari on the road ere now. "'Let us finish the colouring,' said he. "'The boy is well protected if—if if the lords of the air have ears to hear. I am a Sufi, freethinker. But when one can get blindsides of a woman, a stallion, or a devil, why go round to invite a kick? Set him upon the way, Babu, and see that old red hat does not lead him beyond our reach. I must get back to my horses. All right, said Hari Babu. He is at present curious spectacle. About third cockcrow, Kim woke after a sleep of thousands of years. Hanifa in her corner snored heavily, but Mahbub was gone. I hope you were not frightened, said an oily voice at his elbow. I superintended the entire operation, which was most interesting from ethnological point of view. It was high-class Dawat. Ah, said Kim, recognizing Hari Babu, who smiled ingratiatingly. And also I had honour to bring down from Lurgan your present costume. I am not in the habit of officially carrying such gods to subordinates, but—he giggled—your case is noted as exceptional on the books. 
I hope Mr. Lurgan will take note my action. Kim yawned and stretched himself. It was good to turn and twist within loose clothes once again. What is this? He looked curiously at the heavy duffel stuff loaded with the scents of the far north. Oh, that is inconspicuous dress of Chela attached to service of Lamiastic Lama. Complete in every particular, said Hari Babu, rolling into the balcony to clean his teeth at a goglet. I am of opinion it is not your old gentleman's precise religion, but rather subvariant of same. I have contributed rejected notes to Asiatic Quarterly Review on these subjects. Now it is curious that the old gentleman himself is totally devoid of religiosity. He is not a damn particular. Do you know him? Hari Babu held up his hand to show that he was engaged in the prescribed rites that accompany tooth-cleaning and such things among decently bred Bengalis. Then he recited in English an Arya Samaj prayer of a theistical nature and stuffed his mouth with pan and beetle. Oh, yes, I have met him several times at Banaris, and also at Buddhagaya, to interrogate him on religious points and devil-worship. He is pure agnostic, same as me. Hanifa stirred in her sleep, and Haribabu jumped nervously to the copper incense burner, all black and discoloured in morning light, rubbed a finger in the accumulated lamp-black, and drew it diagonally across his face. "'Who has died in thy house?' asked Kim in the vernacular. "'None! But she may have the evil eye, that sorceress,' the Babu replied. "'What dost thou do now, then?' "'I will set thee on thy way to Benares, if thou goest thither, and tell thee what must be known by us.' "'I go. At what hour runs the terrain?' He rose to his feet, looked round the desolate chamber and at the yellow wax face of Hanifa as the low sun stole across the floor. "'Is there money to be paid that witch?' "'No. She has charmed thee against all devils and all dangers, in the name of her devils. It was Mabub's desire.' "'In English?' "'He is highly obsolete, I think, to indulge in such superstition. Why, it is all ventriloquy.' Barely speak, eh? Kim snapped his fingers mechanically to avoid whatever evil—Mabub, he knew, meditated none—might have crept in through Hanifa's ministrations, and Hari giggled once more. But as he crossed the room he was careful not to step in Hanifa's blotched squat shadow on the boards. Witches, when their time is on them, can lay hold of the heels of a man's soul if he does that. "'Now you must well listen,' said the Babu, when they were in the fresh air. "'Part of these ceremonies which we witnessed, they include supply of efficient amulet to those of our department. If you feel in your neck, you will find one small silver amulet, very cheap. That is ours. Do you understand?' "'Oh, yes. A hawadili, a heart-lifter,' said Kim, feeling at his neck. Hanifa, she makes them for two rupees, twelve annas, with, oh, all sorts of exorcisms. They are quite common, except they are partially black enamel, and there is a paper inside each one full of names of local saints and such things. That is Hanifa's lookout, you see. 
Hanifa makes them only for us, but in case she does not, when we get them we put in, before issue, one small piece of turquoise. Mr. Lurgan, he gives them. There is no other source of supply. But it was me invented all this. It is strictly unofficial, of course, but convenient for subordinates. Colonel Crichton, he does not know. He is European. The turquoise is wrapped in the paper. Yes, that is road to railway station. Now, suppose you go with the Lama or with me, I hope, some day or with Mahbub. Suppose we get into damn tight place. I am a fearful man, most fearful. But I tell you, I have been in damn tight places more than hairs on my head. You say, I am son of the charm. Very good. I do not quite understand. We must not be heard talking English here. That is all right. I am only Babu showing off my English to you. All we Babus talk English to show off, said Hari, flinging his shoulder-cloth jauntily. As I was about to say, son of the charm, that means you may be a member of the Sat Baha'i, the Seven Brothers, which is Hindi and Tantric. It is popularly supposed to be extinct society, but I have written notes to show it is still extant. You see, it is all my invention. Very good. Sat Baha'i has many members, and perhaps before they jolly well cut your throat, they may give you just a chance for life. That is useful, anyhow. And, moreover, these foolish natives, if they are not too excited, they always stop to think before they kill a man who says he belongs to any specific organization, you see. You say, then, when you are in tight place, I am son of the charm, and you get, perhaps, uh, your second wind. That is only in extreme circumstances, or to open negotiations with a stranger. Can you quite see? Very good. But suppose now I, or any one of the department, came to you dressed quite different. You would not know me at all unless I chose, I bet you. Some day I will prove it. I will come as Ladakhi trader, or anything, and I say to you, You want to buy precious stones? You say, Do I look like a man who buys precious stones? Then I say, Even very poor man can buy a turquoise or a takian. That is kitchri, vegetable curry, said Kim. Of course it is. You say, Let me see the takian. Then I say, it was cooked by a woman, and perhaps it is bad for your caste. Then you say, There is no caste when men go to look for a Tarkian. You stop a little between those words. To look. That is the whole secret. The little stop before the words. Kim repeated the test sentence. That is all right. Then I will show you my turquoise if there is time, and then you know who I am, and then we exchange views and documents and those all things. And so it is with any other man of us. We talk sometimes about turquoises and sometimes about Tarkian, but always with that little stop in the words. It is very easy. First, son of the charm, if you are in a tight place. Perhaps that may help you, perhaps not. Then what I have told you about the Tarkian. 
if you want to transact official business with a strange man. Of course, at present you have no official business. You are, aha, supernumerary on probation. That's unique specimen. If you were Asiatic of birth, you might be employed right off, but this half-year of leave is to make you de-Englished, you see. The Lama he expects you, because I have demi-officially informed him that you have passed all your examinations, and will soon obtain government appointment. Oh, ho! you are on acting allowance, you see. So, if you are called upon to help sons of the charm, mind you jolly well try. Now, I shall say good-bye, my dear fellow, and I hope you ah uh, will come out topside all right. Hurry Babu stepped back a pace or two into the crowd at the entrance of Lucknow Station, and was gone. Kim drew a deep breath and hugged himself all over. The nickel-plated revolver he could feel in the bosom of his sad-coloured robe. The amulet was on his neck. Begging good, rosary, and ghost-dagger—Mr. Logan had forgotten nothing—were all to hand, with medicine, paint-box, and compass, and in a worn old purse-belt, embroidered with porcupine quill patterns, lay a month's pay. Kings could be no richer. He bought sweetmeats in a leaf-cup from a Hindu trader, and ate them with glad rapture, till a policeman ordered him off the steps. End of chapter 10「Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.